Thank you so much, worship team. Oh, thank you. Not sure if to keep it off my chin or keep it off my shirt or where to keep it. All right, thank you. Thank you very much, worship team. If you would turn to 1 Corinthians, we're going to continue working our way through 1 Corinthians, and I'd like for us to look this morning at chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. I mentioned the fact that um, the first prayer request in the Lord's Prayer could be characterized as our pursuing our happiness in God. And the reality is there are those like Blaise Pascal who would say every man uh, always and every decision he makes is pursuing his happiness one way or the other. And I believe that is true in light of all that the scripture says. And yet we live in a time where there's this um, competition. Actually, it's been from the very Garden of Eden but it seems pronounced in new ways in our own culture. But for many people, happiness is defined as doing what I want to do. That we're convinced that, you know, I can be happy or will be happy if I can just do what I want to do. Whereas the Bible says in various ways that happiness is actually found in doing what God wants us to do. There are three uh, things that we can highlight from the gospel. There's a lot to be said about the gospel, but the gospel proclaims the fact that Jesus is Lord and that he's an able and willing Savior for all who will turn and trust. The gospel also says that God is good and he created us to be holy and to be happy. The problem is we're not holy and we're certainly not as happy as we would like to be. And that's why Jesus is so important as our Savior. The gospel also says that we are called to live in a certain way, to pursue our happiness and the happiness of other people through love. And that means trusting God's promises and obeying God's commands. And so if you think about what the gospel actually says, it actually proclaims that happiness is found in God But we can't have that happiness unless we deal with our sin issue. And that's why Jesus is crucial. And once our sin issue has been dealt with through the cross of Christ, then we are to pursue our happiness by pursuing the happiness of others, by loving. And so what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and and beginning in chapter 8, he's dealing with an attitude in Corinth that is much like the attitude in our culture today. Uh, We can argue that our culture is very much a culture of self. And you can define that in a way such as by saying there's the conviction or the uh, attitude among people in general, it seems, or among a lot of people, we might say, that happiness is doing whatever I want to do and being whatever I want to be. So don't tell me I can't or I'm not. Don't tell me I can't do what I want to do. Don't tell me I'm not whatever I want to be. Self-denial is self-denied. It's the denial of self-denial. 
what I want to do is elevated. What I want to be is elevated. It's all about myself. And there was actually, well, let me just mention again, just connecting this. I said a minute ago that it goes all the way back. It's not like this is something new. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Uh, You can actually see the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in terms of um, basically a decision between, am I going to trust God for my happiness or am I going to trust myself? Because the temptation was to be God themselves, which means to make their own decisions, to determine their own right and wrong, to determine their own identity. It's all about the idol of self. Am I going to be in charge or is God going to be in charge? Is my happiness linked to doing what I want to do and defining myself as I wanted to define myself? Or is my happiness actually in God and doing what he says and embracing what he says about me? There's a book um, by Carl Truman that some of you may have read called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And he's arguing that we are where we are with regard to transgender issues and uh, sexual issues and a lot of different issues in our society that seem just seem out of the blue. You know, they just kind of popped up. And he's arguing they haven't popped up. They're the, um, the f- fruit of a lot of different kinds of um, seed that has been planted over the years. And so he talks about a movement uh, that started with a guy named Rousseau, who um, he characterizes as encouraging the psychological self, which basically means everybody's good. The reason why people are bad is because society corrupts them. And so what you need to do is just look inside yourself for all the answers. And then he says we move on to what he calls the romantic self, where poets began to uh, talk about what Rousseau talked about, and they began to encourage people in various ways to just follow their heart, follow their feelings, be authentic by just doing and saying what you feel like. He said it moved on from there to what he calls the plastic self, where people like Nietzsche and Marx basically said, you're, you're not anything by nature, by God's design. You're just a, the fruit of various forces acting upon you. And therefore, you can change. You, you're, you can be molded differently. You're, you're, you're evolving. And so you've got this idea of evolution, and it included Darwin, who obviously fed into that idea too, that, that nature is not fixed it's plastic, it's evolving, it can change. Then he talks about the, about the sexual self, and he talks about Freud, who basically argued that happiness is found in sexual activity, and that the core of your personality is rooted in sexual activity. And therefore, um, that kind of activity should be exalted and should be expressed in whatever way people want to because it's necessary to people's happiness. And then he talks lastly about the sexually politicized self in which the left has started to use uh, people's idea that my identity is my sexual inclination. And they've begun to say that people are being oppressed if they are denied that 
right and support and encouragement by society. And so he says that's where we are. That's why we are where we are. It began a long time ago, really in the Garden of Eden, but he highlights the fact that there have been various people who've argued against what the Bible says is true, and it's brought us to where we are now. But I share all that to highlight the fact that um, this is the air that we breathe. We breathe this kind of air that says self is preeminent. What I think and feel and want and how I define myself and what I want to do is all that matters. That's the very thing that the Corinthians were actually being tempted to think and tempted to live in the light of. Paul is answering the question that began at the beginning of chapter 8 where they had evidently submitted a question to him about eating meat sacrificed to idols. And they were wanting to know, is it okay? And essentially, is it okay any time I want to do it in any situation? Can I just exercise my freedom regardless of circumstances, regardless of what's happening? Can I just pursue what I want to pursue in this area? And Paul's answer um, is essentially an outworking of what we find in Galatians 5, where he says, For you are called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now that's a succinct statement of what he's actually applying to the question in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. And so I just want to help us think through this passage section by section. The first thing that I want us to see is that he's going to begin talking in in verses 1 through 13 about religious experience and lifestyle. And I want us to think about the idea of the culture of self and our Christianity and how we need to beware of being the Sunday-only Christian. And hopefully you'll see what I mean by what he says in these verses. So in verse 1, let me just back up just a minute. At the very end of chapter 9, he begins to transition into what he's going to say in chapter 10 because what he says at the end of chapter 9 is, he says uh, that it's important to exercise self-control like you're, in a, you're uh, competing in the Olympics. Um, you need to exercise self-control that you might win the race and that you might not be disqualified. And so that's really the context for what he says at the very beginning of chapter 10 is, are you running to win or are you in danger of being disqualified? And so this is what he says in light of that. He says in verse 1, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. 
nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. So Paul, in addressing the question of whether or not you should eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols, first of all, labors the point that we should be willing to give up our rights in order to love people. But then he transitions to, into the issue of what about uh, eating meat uh, sacrificed to idols regardless of how it affects other people? What about how it might be affecting you personally? And that's what he's actually beginning to talk about. And he's beginning to say, he's raising the question, is it possible the way that you're approaching this whole eating meat thing is endangering your soul? Is it possible that your attitude about just doing what you want to do because you're free in Jesus is actually endangering your soul? Do you see that there's some danger involved in this whole issue of eating meat sacrificed to idols, even though idols are not real? And so that's what the chapter is dealing with. And he begins by uh, reminding them of the experience of the Israelites in the Old Testament. If you read your Old Testament, you know God delivered them from Egypt. And that's what he begins by talking about. He begins by talking about all the blessings that they had, that God brought the Israelites out of Egypt, uh, that he fed them manna in the wilderness, that he brought water and millions of gallons of water out of a rock to give them water to drink, that he led them with a cloud by day and fire by night, that he cared for them, he watched over them, and he did all these wonderful things for them. But he said that with most of them, God was not well pleased and that their bodies were strewn over the desert. And he says the reason why God was not pleased with with them was because they craved evil things. That even though they had all the benefits of the manna and the water and the cloud and God's care, and they were being cared for God in a very special way, and they, they enjoyed all these benefits and privileges and provision, their hearts were not... For God, they weren't pursuing their happiness in God. They were craving evil things. God and what he had provided was not enough. And so um, he goes on to talk about uh, that. Um, many believe that when he refers to them craving evil desires, it's referencing Numbers chapter 11, where they began complaining about the manna and wanting uh, meat to eat. And so God gives them quail, 
quail that stacks up a few feet high all around the camp and they begin to eat it and God judges them and they're buried. Many of them die and they call it the graves of greediness because they were not content with what God was providing. They weren't looking to God for what they desired and needed, but they were saying what God was providing and God himself was not adequate. And so Paul says, be careful of living your life in such a way, even though you profess Christ, that you're really not pursuing Christ, not pursuing your happiness in God. In fact, you're exhibiting a dissatisfaction with God and what he's provided and what he promises. And so you're looking to other things. And so he uses four illustrations of that kind of greediness and dissatisfaction with God. He talks about um, the golden calf when he references um, that they... uh, The people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. That's a reference to the golden calf um, and how they uh, dishonored the Lord in that. Then he goes on to talk about uh, the sin of the daughters with the daughters of Moab at Peor, which is in Numbers 25, when he talks about the 23,000 who died by acting immorally. Uh, He goes on to talk about trying the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, which is actually a reference to complaining about the journey and complaining about the manna in Numbers 21. And then he goes on to talk about the rebellion under Korah and how God opened the earth and uh, swaddled those who were in rebellion. And then the people complained about that uh, judgment of God. And it says, and we see that in Numbers chapter 16 and And Paul references this as uh, grumbling as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. And so he goes on to say that all of these things that happened in the Old Testament were historical actual events. They're not just fiction. It's not myth. They really happened. But they pointed beyond themselves. They were meant to be instructive. They were meant to be warnings to other people who also... Um, embrace sin and crave things that God says you shouldn't pursue whether believers or not or professing believers or not because the chapter is a warning to uh, the Corinthians and the reality is that in any church of any size it's likely that, that not everyone there is a Christian even if they proclaim to be a Christian. And so obviously in the church in Corinth, Paul was well aware that even though um, the church was full of Christians, it doesn't mean that every person there in the church was a Christian. And so the warnings were meant to highlight the fact that we need to be aware of the idea that we can benefit from being a part of the people of God and yet still not be pursuing God. Many people will look at what Paul says about the manna and relate it to the bread of the Lord's Supper. They will look at what he says about the water from the rock and relate it to uh, the blood or the juice that we use in the Lord's Supper, that he's going to move to talking about the Lord's Supper. And so there's a sense in which 
you've got a picture of the Lord's Supper in the Old Testament that he's making a connection to, to say that just because you partake of the Lord's Supper and that you're a part of the body of Christ doesn't mean that you're not in danger. Because what does he say? He says, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. In verse 12. So it's a warning to say just being a part of the visible church isn't enough any more than it was just enough to be part of the visible Israel. It was an issue of what is your desire? What is your pursuit? What, what is going on in your heart? And how are you responding to what uh, God is doing or not doing? And so he's encouraging us uh, to examine our own hearts. He was encouraging, obviously, the Corinthians to examine their own heart because there was something that was keeping them from loving. And he's saying, you guys aren't willing to lay down your life to love your brothers. You're not willing to give up these things. Why is that? Could it be that your heart just isn't right here? And, and so he's raising that question because he loves them and he wants them to be rightly related to God and rightly related to each other. And so, just very quickly, the point I'm trying to make is he, he's highlighting the fact that there is the reality of the Sunday-only Christian who participates in the external worship of Christ but isn't really pursuing Christ in his life. Uh, someone in a Christianity Today article uh, asked the question, you know, what if someone were to follow you around for a day, a week, or even a month, and they had access to your whole life? Would they know that you are a believer in Christ? They would have full access to all your social media accounts, also get to watch everything you are watching, and listen to every single one of your conversations. Would they see that the Bible is making a difference in your life, and you are desiring to follow it as your plumb line. It's really what Paul is asking here. He's asking the question, what is your real desire and how is it translating into what you're pursuing in your daily lives? C.S. Lewis said, we might think that God wanted simply obedience to a set of rules, like going to church and those kinds of things, whereas he really wants people of a particular sort he wants us to be a certain kind of person, not just to do certain things. He wants us to be a certain kind of person that has certain desires and pursuits that translate into uh, what we do in our lives. Isaiah, God in Isaiah chapter 1, actually tells the Israelites, uh, What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? He basically says, I wish you'd stop coming to church in an Old Testament kind of way. And why does he say that? If you read on, he says, because your hands are covered with blood. You're... you're you're sitting and you don't care. You're mistreating each other and you don't care. You're not really honoring me with your heart. And so uh, the first thing that Paul is doing here with the Corinthians is in trying to help them love each other is to say you need to examine what you're really pursuing. Are you really pursuing your happiness in God or are you pursuing it in the world? And so that's where he starts. 
or at least that's how he continues in chapter 10. That's where he starts in chapter 10 and addressing this issue. Well, let's go into the next section and see what he says, because he's going to help us think through the culture of self. Again, we're still thinking about that and how we worship, who we worship with, fellowship with. And so he starts to talk about pagan worship and the spiritual realities involved in pagan worship. And so he says in verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things which, which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? And so he goes on to say, flee idolatry. Flee anything that's involved in worshiping anything other than the true God through Christ. The idea among the Corinthians at that point was, we know that idols are nothing. There's only one God. And therefore, why can't we just go to an idol temple and be a part of what's going on there and eat the best meat that you can find that's going to be in the idol temple and just enjoy it? Why can't we just participate when we know that it's not real? They're not worshiping anything that's real. And Paul says, you're right. I agree. There are no other gods than God. But that's not all that's going on there, that there there are other realities going on. There are spiritual realities that you're not taking into account. You're not taking into account that there are spiritual entities behind those false gods. Those gods are truly false. But there are spiritual entities behind those false gods that are not false. They're very, very real. And they're satanic. They're demonic. The false idols are simply inspired by demons. They're lies from the devil to deceive people. And so he says, you need to understand that when you partake of meals in worship, it's not just a bare activity that has no spiritual implication. And he starts by saying, don't you know that when you eat the Lord's Supper, when you receive it by faith as a believer, that that bread is a sharing in, a fellowship in, an actual real spiritual experience of receiving the body of Christ. That's exactly what he says, right? Uh, He says when you drink the cup, you're actually sharing in the blood of Christ. Verse 16, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in, a fellowship in, a participation in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? He's not saying we actually partake of the actual physical body. It's not transubstantiation. It's not consubstantiation. 
It's not the Roman Catholic, Catholic view. It's not the Lutheran view. But as Calvin would say, there's a real spiritual presence that takes place through our observance of the Lord's Supper. That it is a real partaking of Christ spiritually that benefits us, that impacts us. It's not just a bare memorial. Yes, we remember Christ, but we also fellowship with Christ. Now, we might not feel it and sense it, but it's happening and we receive it by faith. We believe it by faith. Well, he says, you know, and you go to the pagan temple and you eat their meat. You say, oh, I don't feel any demon. I don't feel like I'm sharing in fellowship with demons. He says, you don't have to feel it, but you are. That is the spiritual reality, that you are sharing in demons as you involve yourself in pagan worship. And so he's warning them that not only is there an issue of laying aside your rights to love someone who has a weak conscience, there is the issue of if you go to a pagan temple, you're actually participating in demon fellowship, demon worship, because the demons are behind what's going on there. And so, obviously, the none of us here, I don't think, are tempted to go to um, any kind of pagan worship service. I doubt that any of us are thinking about that because they serve really good meals, you know? That, so it's, that's not our situation. But that doesn't mean there aren't any, any applications for us. Uh, obviously, the occult, being involved in the occult, uh, being involved in seances, uh, Ouija boards, there's all kinds of occult kinds of activity that are fellowship with demons. So you don't go and get your fortune read and you don't go to a palm reader and you don't go do all those kinds of things. Uh, Those things are just akin to the kind of thing that he's talking here. It may not be exactly the same kind of thing, but it's akin to it. And there's something else that's akin to it. It's not the exact same kind of thing, but there's the issue of, of... Worship that takes place outside of the body of Christ. And worship involves music. Worship involves song. And I think this is maybe one of the things that we don't think a whole lot about, but I'm not saying it's the exact same thing as going to a pagan temple, but I'm saying it is the issue of how are we in some sense um, drinking in the lies of the enemy and feeding on it in ways that is actually spiritually harmful, just like it would be if we were to go to a pagan temple. Um, The reality is uh, music is very, very powerful. Uh, That's one reason why we do what we do on Sundays. That's why we appreciate the worship team like we do. It's because the truth put into musical Form and into a musical medium is very powerful. And it's been intended by God to be just that. Luther, Martin Luther said, um, next to the word of God, music deserves the highest praise. Next to the word of God, the noble act, or excuse me, noble art of music is the greatest treasure in the world. Next to the word of God, music comes a very close second, Luther could say. And C.S. Lewis argued that um, music is a medium for meeting God. 
And if you read what he had to say about music, he argued that there were times when he would listen to uh, things that he listened to before he was a Christian that weren't inherently wrong, but he knew that it was, he would say, the enemy's design in that music was to get him to look apart from God to those things for satisfaction, for happiness. He knew that there was still a danger. He said, I think every natural thing which is not in itself sinful can become the servant of the spiritual life, but none is automatically so. When it is not, it becomes either just trivial, as music is to millions of people, or a dangerous idol. The emotional effect of music may not only may not be only a distraction to some people at sometimes, but a delusion, i.e., feeling certain emotions in church that mis- they mistake for religious emotions when they may be wholly natural. He goes on to say, so that the test of music or religion or even visions, if one has them, is always the same. Do they make one more obedient, more God-centered? and neighbor-centered, and less self-centered. Going back to the culture of the self. Though I speak with the tongues of Bach and Palestrina and have not charity, etc. And so just highlighting the fact that music is a powerful way of meeting God. We know that Satan counterfeits everything that God does. And therefore, he wants to use every powerful medium that God has given us to meet him to actually turn it on its head and use it so that we meet Satan, that we are deceived by Satan. And so that's why it just occurred to me this week to think about the fact that um, music is a form of worship. And I just looked up on, um, just Googled, um, the Devil's Spotify Playlist. And they actually have the Devil's Music Radio Spotify Playlist that you can find. And I haven't listened to these songs, so I don't know what all they talk about. I looked at a couple of them, and they weren't explicitly about the devil, but they definitely headed in a direction that was at least in terms of despair. And some of the, the titles were Decoy, uh, Devote Yourself to Nothing, Cross the Line, Hello Misery, Doomsday Party, Kingdom Never Come, World Hate Center, Lost Reality, In the Nothingness Black, Black is the Soul, Sin. I think there's no doubt that um, Satan uses music just like he uses pagan worship, just like he uses everything that God uses for good, He uses it for evil. And all I'm saying is we need to be careful of what we are feeding upon. Not that it's, you know, I can can go online and listen to those songs to find out what they're about and not be defiled. That's not the issue. It's not knowing the songs or hearing the songs. But if I listen to those songs all day, every day, I would be feeding on it. I'd be drinking of it. I'd be eating it. And in Ecclesiastes, it says, it is better to listen to the rebuke, rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. And typically in the Bible, listening doesn't mean just hearing it one time, just hearing it in passing, or even listening to it to critique it and analyze it, but listening to it 
drinking it in, feeding on it, letting it shape what I think and shape what I do. To listen to the song of fools is to listen to the song of the devil. And it's in a sense to fellowship with them in that. And in our day and time, we just need to be aware of the fact that even though what Paul is talking about here can seem very remote, the reality of the devil and the issue of eating at the devil's table is still an issue for all of us in one way or another. And so we just have to be careful about that and um, remember uh, that we want to feed our souls on what will actually cause us to seek our happiness in God and not in the things of the world. Um, Let me go on to the last point for the the, uh, time that we have left. In the last section, in the last section of this chapter, it encourages us to think about the culture of self and how we exercise our freedom. And uh, he's talking about the issue of freedom and love and the interchange between the two. And he says in verse 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informs you and for conscience sake. I mean not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning excuse me, that for which I give thanks? Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks, to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. And so um, Paul highlights the fact that um, practically speaking, once you've recognized that You need to be ready to lay down your rights in order to love other people if their conscience might be affected uh, by what you do. And if you recognize that going to an idol temple and worshiping is not right because it's dangerous spiritually, he says there are a couple other situations I want to address. And he says you can go to the meat market and you can buy the meat. Whatever meat is there, and even though most of it Uh, might have come through the idol worship process and have been dedicated to an idol, don't ask any questions. Just buy the meat and eat it. And he says, if an unbeliever uh, invites you to their home and they probably have bought that meat from uh, the meat market as well and it very well could have been sacrificed to an idol, he says... Uh, don't say anything, don't ask them, you know, where'd this meat come from? Uh, But, he says, if they voluntarily say, you know, I got this meat from the meat market and it was sacrificed to Jupiter, he says, don't eat it. He says, don't eat it because of your sake, eat it because of their sake. 
not for your conscience, because you know it's it's the earth is the Lord and all that it contains. Uh, but don't eat it because you don't want to encourage them to think that you're looking at that meat in the same way they're looking at it. They're looking at it as an offering to Jupiter. And they're seeing you as participating in what they're doing. He says, don't let them think that. Uh, let them know that uh, you don't believe in Jupiter. But you believe that Jesus has revealed to us the true God. And therefore, for their sake, in order to love them, don't do that. And so he highlights the fact that the issue is uh, ultimately the glory of God, exalting God and pleasing God, and thereby loving people. The issue isn't simply, can I do whatever I want to do? Can I just, you know, enjoy life because Christ has done everything for us? And so he highlights the fact that what you want to do is you want to please God Pursue your joy in God and therefore love people in whatever way is required. And he calls us all to do the same thing, to pursue our happiness in God and to pursue other people's happiness in God by living to please God. Again, we've talked a lot about the illustration C.S. Lewis makes uh, when he talks about um, the fact that We're tempted just to live our lives like everybody else does. He says um, that the Lord finds our desires too weak, not too strong, because he says we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. And he uses the illustration of someone coming to a little child in a slum playing with mud pies, and they say, hey, would you like to come to the beach? like to have a day at the beach? And they say, no, I'm good. I'm really enjoying these mud pies. He says, we're like that. We're too easily pleased. We're pleased with mud pies like a child when we could go to the beach. It's not that God is trying to keep us from what will please us. He's trying to deliver us from being too easily pleased. We're pleased with the things of this world that will never satisfy. And we're pleased with pleasing ourselves. He says, you'll never be pleased by living to please yourself. You'll be pleased by living to please God. You'll be truly and fully and forever pleased by living to please God and living to please others. Not in the sense that you just do whatever body wants you to do, but you seek to love them. You seek to please them by loving them in the way that God calls us to love them. That's why Paul could say, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And what he means by it doesn't mean it's not blessed to receive, I mean, when we get to heaven, we're going to receive greatly and we'll be tremendously blessed. I mean, that's what heaven will be, us receiving. We're not going there to give God a single thing, but he's going to bless us with every spiritual blessing. We'll be receiving and we'll be perfectly and fully happy, forever happy. But Paul means in this life, you pursue your happiness in God by giving, not by just doing what you want to do, Defining yourself as you want to define yourself, um, being selfish. But our culture says, no, that's how you pursue happiness. You define yourself the way you want you to define yourself. You do what you want to do. You don't let anybody tell you to deny yourself. But Jesus said, in this world, you deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. 
and you will pursue your full and lasting happiness. And you'll pursue the happiness of others as well at the same time. And so we have to ask ourselves uh, what our goal in life is. That's what he was asking the Corinthians. What is your goal in all this? Is your goal is just to simply do what you want to do and enjoy life? Or is it your goal to glorify and enjoy God? Is that your goal? Is it your goal to, to please God and know that in living to please God, God will please you? That God calls you to find your pleasure in him, to be pleased with him, and as we live that way, he actually, he does. He pleases us. Not perfectly in this life, but ultimately in the life to come. And so, is our goal in life to love others as God commands us to, or simply to pursue what we want to do? That's the temptation in our culture. The air we breathe is, just be yourself, do what you want to do. Just don't lay down your life for other people. Just live to have a good time. And so Paul is encouraging us, as he was encouraging the Corinthians, to ask themselves, are you really following Christ or are you following yourself? Are you following the culture of self? And he wants us to realize that that's the path of death. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death, the Bible says. And our culture is a culture of death we, we approve the killing of babies and we approve people just defining themselves like they want to and doing what they want to do. And both of those are evidence of a culture of self and a culture of death because it's leading people into misery. It's leading people into, into death. And the heart of God is to rescue us. Jesus said, I came that you might have life you might have it abundantly. And so it ultimately comes down to um, what do we believe about God? Do we really believe that he created us to be holy and happy and that Jesus came to deal with our sin issue that we might be reconciled to God and that everything that God calls us to do is actually a way of pursuing my happiness in God and pursuing other people's happiness in God. That's what he was challenging the Corinthians with. How do you look at God? How do you look at what God requires of you? How do you look at what it means to follow Christ? And are you following Christ? Is it your heart's desire to follow him and to trust him to make you fully and forever happy? When I think about the issue of happiness, um, Like I said at the beginning, I believe Blaise Pascal was right. All of us are pursuing our happiness. The question is, how, where, why? What what shapes our lives? And Paul is encouraging us all to make sure, make sure that you haven't drifted from the fact that the Bible says, God is our exceeding joy. God is the one who's only going to be able to satisfy our souls. Be careful of drifting, as it says in Hebrews, and lay down your life for others and find your joy in God. Let's pray. Father, we do pray and ask that you would help us receive the encouragement from your word. You've given us your word to encourage us, not just to beat us 
or to, or to make us feel bad or to, um, to do anything that Satan wants to think, wants to make us think is really your goal. It's your heart to bless us with yourself. It's your heart to make us fully and forever happy in you. And therefore, where you call us to deny ourselves, where you call us to obey in various ways, where you call us to love in various ways, where you call us to trust you in various ways, it's because you desire that we would know your joy, that we would find you to be all that you've promised to be for us. And so I pray, Father, that you would help us as we wrestle with loving people around us, just like the Corinthians were wrestling with loving each other. Uh, help us to ask the question, well, what am I really pursuing here? Uh, where, is, where am I looking for happiness? And is where I'm looking for happiness freeing me to forgive and love and accept others, or is it actually undermining that? Is it freeing me to deny myself and pursue what pleases you, or is it actually undermining that? Am I craving things that will never satisfy that you've forbidden? Father, I pray, I pray that you would rescue us and that you'd satisfy us in you more and more. Through Jesus, our Lord, please prepare us to celebrate you, Lord Jesus, in this Lord's Supper. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.